are in the Gospel of Mark, we are taking a journey with Jesus. We're walking with Him, trying to figure out how to become the kind of people that look, sound, smell like Jesus. We want to be the kind of people that are described as His followers, as His apprentices, as His students. And so we're taking a journey through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a fast-moving record of Jesus' life. And we've already seen up to this point that Jesus declares that he is the Messiah. So he is fulfilling all of these promises from the Old Testament. He comes declaring a message that the kingdom of God is near. And he is on the offense against the rule of Satan. And the rule of Satan is beginning to see a reversal. Where there was death, we are now beginning to see life. Where there was sickness, we're seeing healings. And up to this point, we've seen several records of healings along the way where people are finding their broken bodies restored. And this morning, we're going to take a look at two more stories of healings. And we're going to see that the story gets more complex as we consider these two stories of healings. And we're going to learn more about who Jesus is, what he was about. And we're going to find application for our life right where we find ourselves. And so we're going to pick up in this fast-moving story in chapter 1, verse 40. So Mark chapter 1, we pick up with verse 40 as we continue to move through this gospel, finding application for our life. Here's what verse 40 says. A man with leprosy came to him, came to Jesus, And begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. Now, if you're using a different translation right here, most of the other translations get this right. Some of you have, or Jesus was filled with compassion. And many other, uh, there are many manuscripts that go with that version. The NIV does not. I think the more accurate translation here is Jesus was filled with compassion. So that's why I put it in parentheses here on the screen. I just want to make note of that. We'll keep reading here. So we're going to go with Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched the man. He said, I am willing. He said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Up to this point, right here, if we stop with verse 42, this is exactly where we would think the story would bring us. The kingdom of God is on the move. Healings are happening day by day. And here we have another story where a person with leprosy comes. They come in contact with the kingdom of God in Jesus, and the man is healed. And this is as we would expect things. But then we keep reading, and the story takes an interesting shift, a shift we may not expect. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning, with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, at this point, I was not looking for a warning to come from Jesus next. You see, in my world, if you're healed of leprosy, you put that on Instagram and wait for a thousand likes. That's what you're waiting for. You know people's thumbs are going to start hitting to heart that thing. If you, once having leprosy, are now cleansed, 
And here Jesus says, don't you dare post this on your social media platforms. You don't tell anyone. You go to the priest, you do exactly what Moses told you, and you have him declare you clean so that you can come back into the community and you leave it there. Why in the world would Jesus bring such a warning to this man? Now, I'm going to assume that Jesus knew what he was talking about. I think it's always safe to assume Jesus knows what he's talking about. So there must be something going on here that was for the good of this man and the good of the community and the good of Jesus' ministry that he brings a warning that says, don't you post this on Instagram. There has to be something else going on. We find that in verse 45. Check this out. This is what happens. Verse 45, instead... Instead, he went out, and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. So he does the exact opposite of what Jesus has told him to do. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Jesus could no longer go into a town publicly. The crowds had, had grown so large that no longer could Jesus do the ministry he was called to do because the crowds had grown so large. And because those crowds had started to focus on the miracles more than the message. See, I think that what's beginning to happen is that the crowds, the size of these crowds, the emphasis of the crowds, the focus of the crowds a focus that paid more attention to the miracles than the message began to push out the message of Jesus. You see, I want us to realize up to this point that there's a growing temptation emerging in the story up to this point. I want to help us realize this point. Up to this point in the story, there was a growing temptation among the people to love the miracles so much they missed the Messiah. They were falling in love with the spectacle of his healings while overlooking the substance of his message. I think we get that, don't we? We get it when we become so enamored with the spectacle that we miss the substance. And in our day, that becomes very easy because we love spectacle. We love things that thrill us and entertain us. It's why every new action movie that comes out ratchets up the CGI. The action's got to be more. The violence has got to be greater. You've got to have the wow factor to a new level. And I think what's happening is in his day, Jesus is finding that the miracles are beginning to push out the message. And the people want, want the spectacle, but they don't want the substance. Then we get a hint that this was already happening before we ever got to the leper. If we go back to something we looked at last week, take a look at how we see the hints. We, we're already seeing the seeds of this temptation already growing before we ever got to verse 40 this morning. We may have missed it last week. Verse 35, we're just going back up in the chapter. So chapter 1, verse 35, we go back to that passage. This is what we read. Very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. That is why I have come. You see, Jesus didn't come to win elections. 
He didn't come to win popularity contests. He came to preach the message of the kingdom. And the kingdom was a message that the presence of God was now near. It was available. It was available to all people, and you could now participate in the work of God through Jesus by repenting of your sins and believing this good news. And so Jesus was calling people to deal with their sins and come and participate in a new kind of life. And yet what they began to see more and more was just miracles. And those miracles pushed out the message. And the hints of the temptation to see the spectacle rather than the substance was already growing before we ever get to the leper. But Jesus was not here to gain popularity. He was here to preach a message and bring good news. And so, in this first story of healing, we see that there's this layer of complexity where Jesus is not just about winning elections and building bigger crowds. He's in the business of doing ministry that proclaims a particular message. And that's something we weren't seeing in its fullness last week as we walk through the beginning of the story that Mark is telling us about this Messiah. And so when we come to this second story of healing, we're going to drop into chapter 2. The story gets a little more complex. And yet in that deeper layer, we see something about Jesus that we hadn't seen yet. Let's take a look. Chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to build on the story we just read, and we're going to take it now into chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Now just stop there. The crowds have gathered. He's in a house. We would expect at this point that miracles are about to rush in. The kingdom of God is still on the move, and Jesus is still in the business of doing miracles. And now we find the record of Jesus entering a town He's in a house, and the crowds are so large that the, the people are standing on the outside of the house. We would expect at this point that a miracle is just on the other side. But Jesus does not initially lead with miracle here. Mark is very clear, and if we are moving too quickly, we'll miss it. Check out the next part of verse 2. I'm just going to put it right up on the screen. And he preached the word to them, and he preached the word to them. So here we have crowds gathered. We have this house so full that people are on the outside of the house, and what does Jesus initially do? He preaches the word to them. He gives them a message. He gives them substance. I'm looking for a miracle. I'm wanting spectacle. But Jesus gives them message. He gives them substance. And so we have no doubt here that he's preaching the message of the kingdom. He must be saying something about how the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is now available to them. Like it's right here. You come participate in this new kind of life. And he's probably saying something about their sins. Leave the kind of life you've been living. Turn it around. And you come participate. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. I imagine, I imagine some were there wondering, what is this Jesus going to do about my sins? What in the world can he do here in this house with these crowds? But as he's teaching, he's interrupted. As often happens as we move through this gospel, Jesus is interrupted. 
We're going to pick up verse 3 and 4. Here's the interruption. Some men came, and they were bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man, uh, lowered the mat the man was lying on. Because you can imagine Jesus is here teaching. He's preaching the word. He's bringing a particular message with substance. And all of a sudden, the roof caves in. I mean, literally, someone's coming through the roof. And in front of him is lying this paralyzed man. Now, all of a sudden, a miracle is right on the horizon. How could it not? First thing Jesus has got to do is get the man off the mat. But remember, Jesus is preaching, first and foremost, a particular message. He's bringing substance. He's not in the business of just bringing miracles and spectacle. And so what he's going to do is take an opportunity to teach them something about who he is and the kingdom he's bringing. The kingdom of God is spreading. This is what that means. The spread of the kingdom of God was not just to restore bodies to health, but it ultimately restores souls to new life. The Messiah was bringing soul restoration to the earth. That's why he's telling them to leave the kind of life they were living. That's another way of saying repent of your sins. And believe in the good news. Come, participate. Come and live a different kind of life with me in the rule of God. Particularly in a day now where the rule of Satan is being reversed. And Jesus is going to take that teaching of the kingdom, the spread of the kingdom, which is ultimately concerned about the restoration of the soul, and he's going to help the people understand the way into that kingdom. And he's going to show them it comes through him. So before he ever tells the man to get off his mat, he's going to take them one layer deeper into the kingdom. And he's going to show them something about himself. Verse 5, look what happens the very thing you and I were not expecting. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if we just stop there, I know you see the other verses on the screen. If we were honest, we'd all be saying, What is this dude talking about? Who cares if his sins are forgiven? The guy is paralyzed. Get him up off the mat. I wouldn't care about sins if my body was broken. But Jesus is always taking us another layer deeper into the kingdom. And here's the opportunity. He tells the man, your sins are forgiven. Something about the kingdom of God is dealing with the soul before it dealt with the body. Let's pick up verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Note this, verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know something about the Messiah. I want you to understand something about me. Then comes verse 11. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, 
took his mat, he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus fundamentally deals with the man's soul before he deals with his body. Because in the kingdom, God is in the business of soul restoration on earth, not just body restoration. And he takes them to this new layer of teaching in the kingdom. He's moving them from just seeing the miracle to understanding at a deeper level the message. He's getting them to stop, look, to, to, to avoid just seeing the spectacle that they may see and hear the substance of the kingdom of God. With all of that said, let's take a theological side note. These are these moments along the way where I want to say something about a deeper part of the story that doesn't fit in the narrative I want to paint for you in a sermon. So we just take a bit of a tangent. We're going to call it a theological side note. And I want to talk about the significance, the significance of Jesus forgiving sins. For the Jews in that room, this would have been a significant moment. Jesus would have been saying something even deeper than what we've just said. Remember that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he creates man and woman. And then we read in Genesis that God dwelt with Adam and Eve there in the garden. Heaven and earth were together, united. But then Adam tried to be God, and that doesn't work in God's creation. And so then sin entered the world, and what is often referred to as the fall happened, and there was separation between heaven and earth. The presence of God in earth, there was separation. But God was not content to keep heaven and earth separated. He always wanted to bring them back together. And so eventually he calls a guy named Abram, and then he creates a people out of this, this man. And then he calls him Abraham. And out of the family of Abraham will come the Israelites, the Jews. And God's going to teach the Jews how to have a relationship with them. At one point, after they are freed from the slavery of, uh, of Egypt, which is often called the Exodus, he teaches the people in the wilderness to build what is called a tabernacle. And it's at the tabernacle that the people are to go make sacrifices. And it's at the tabernacle where God will dwell. It's the one place in the mind of the Jews that sins can be forgiven. In that one place. That's where heaven and earth are recombined in the tabernacle. And that's where sins are forgiven. So if you need your sins forgiven, you've got to go to the tabernacle, the place where heaven and earth are being brought together. Well, eventually they establish a nation, and then they have a capital city. They have Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem they will have the temple. They will build a building, a much larger building, a much more stable building. That's where sacrifices are to happen. That's where God will dwell. That is temple is where heaven and earth are combined. If you need your sins forgiven, you got to go to the temple. Because the temple is the place where forgiveness happens, because that's the place where heaven and earth are being reunited. God is still in the business of bringing the two together. Fast forward to Mark chapter 2. Here, Jesus, outside of Jerusalem, outside of a tabernacle and temple, tells a man on a mat that he now has authority to forgive the man's sins. 
And in that one statement, the Jews in that room were getting a glimpse that in Jesus, heaven and earth were being brought together in a person. And so if you needed your sins forgiven now, you came to a person, not a place. This is a significant theological point that is being made by Jesus to these Jews. And you know that eventually when Jesus dies on the cross, that there will be a, a veil in the temple that is torn, declaring that you no longer go to the temple to have your sins forgiven. You go to a person. Because in Jesus, he is reuniting heaven and earth. That is a very significant point being made by Jesus. You go to a person, not a place anymore. That is your theological side note for this morning. Let's take, a, take now our journey back into the text, back into the story we're trying to tell as we are wanting to be a people that see, see not just the miracle but the message, not just the spectacle but the substance. Let's move now to some application. Let's move to some application. I think this is true here that we are still tempted today to want all the things Jesus can do for us but not want Jesus himself. I think we're still tempted in that direction. Like, I think you are still tempted in that direction. I think I still am tempted in that direction. There's a warning here, though, because if you and I walk this road, here's what you're going to get. Take a look at this statement. When we grab for miracles while ignoring his message, we get an idol, not a Messiah. When we grab for the miracle and not his message, when we ignore the message, we're getting an idol, not a Messiah. Idols are things, are gods that we create in our own image. We're very comfortable with idols. We create them. They make us feel good, and they will always do what we want. And we're always in control. And we come up with a million ways to create little idols in our life. But when you get an idol, you don't get the living God. And idols will always fail you. And so you and I have to be very careful not to pick up an idol. I think one of the things that we are tempted towards, we are tempted towards trying to get Jesus to fix all the things on our outside, all the external parts of our life without, without realizing that Jesus is grabbing for a relationship beyond having all of our external things fixed and right. Let me say it this way. I want to say it this way to get us to our next point. Jesus is more interested in dealing with our sins than our sicknesses. He's more interested in giving us hope and eternal life than hope and physical health. And no matter how much you go to Jesus for physical health, if you live long enough, it will fail you. No matter how much you pray, no matter how much you yearn for it, your physical health will, in the end, fail you. That's just the nature of this world, still under the rule of Satan. Your body cannot go forever. And you can't control everyone else so they don't ever hurt you. Jesus is trying to get us into a particular kind of life. We call that eternal life. And sometimes, just sometimes, Jesus will actually use our sufferings and our sicknesses, our broken bodies and our difficult work situations to draw us to an eternal kind of life. 
Paul, who knew many sufferings, wrote about this. Take a look, Romans chapter, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 5. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops the strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us. Because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God is fundamentally concerned with getting you to a place where you understand he actually likes you. Now, I know I could say love, but that word's been used a lot. I want you to understand God likes you. Like he would actually hang out with you. He likes you, and he will cover over and have mercy over all of the things you do that's, that, that make you a screw-up. Jesus covers those, and he still likes you. And here Paul says that you should actually be thankful for your sufferings because they're going to draw you to a place where you get Jesus and you know his love. Now that is counter to the way of this world. In this world, I'd much rather have a miracle than understand that message. I would much rather have a spectacle in front of me where my body's no longer broken than to come into the substance of a relationship with Jesus who actually, actually likes me. But what Paul understood and Jesus did before him is that the only way you're finding life, I mean a good life, is with Jesus. And you can have a good life and have cancer. You can be joyful and have days to live. You can be in the hospital facing a procedure and have patience and endurance and hope in Jesus. There was a couple in our church this week who, who received news that the wife of this couple has at most two years to live. That's what treatment. I sat with them on Friday, hours after they got this second opinion. And I did a little review of this sermon. And I said at the end of my little word, my, these words of encouragement, I said, I want you to understand we're going to pray for a miracle. God's still in the business of doing miracles. And that's how we're going to pray. It's how we prayed. But in the midst of the pursuit of the miracle, don't you miss the Messiah. Don't you miss Jesus. Do not let your cancer rob you of Jesus. There's a book I mentioned to this couple. I want to mention it to you. It's a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't Waste Your Cancer by John Piper. Very small book. You can even call it a pamphlet. And Piper makes the argument, he himself having had cancer, facing a very difficult prognosis, going into surgery, reflected on his own experience, and as a pastor wanted to pass on these lessons, and wrote this little pamphlet that basically said, God will use your cancer for his glory, and he will draw you to his son deeper than you ever knew imaginable. Don't you waste your cancer. That doesn't mean you don't pray for a miracle. Oh my, you pray for miracles. But don't you miss the Messiah in the pursuit of the miracle. Because the worst thing to happen to you is to get caught up in being healed and miss the healer. And that's a very real threat in our world because we love miracles and we love spectacles. You get Jesus, you will get everything else. Your body might 
break down and you may die in this body, but you will live forever and you can have joy in the midst of it. Now, I don't know how all that works. I don't know how all of this plays out. I'm not old enough and my body hasn't hurt enough to fully understand what I'm telling you. So please understand, if you come up to me and say, but you've never experienced this, I'm going to say, yes, I know. But I'm listening to Jesus on this one. And if Paul, who suffered so much, could say rejoice in your sufferings because it will bring you to a place of hope, then that's what I want to bring you. And I say, Lord Jesus, help us understand this truth. Could you get us to that place? That's what I want for us. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to take us to a place where we have a next step that puts us right in the middle of this truth. Right in the middle of it. Here's the next step. Pray Ephesians 3, 6 through 9, 16 through 19. What in the world does that scripture say? Good thing I put it on a slide. Here it is. I pray. Here's what Paul writes. He says, I pray. This is Paul praying for these Christians. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's a good prayer. In the midst of your cancer, pray that you may know the love of Christ that is wide and deep and long and high. May your broken bodies draw you to that kind of love. And in the end, if you get him, you'll get everything else. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. Take us to a place where we would know the love of Christ, its height, its depth, its length, its width. And would we know it to the full measure of your love in this world as you continue working to restore souls. Forgive us of our sins as we believe the good news. Help us now, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.